may be seated. Good morning. It's uh, good to be here with you this morning. My name is Steve Winstead, and I'm an associate pastor here at Harvest Church. Um, last night, I was texting back and forth with Kenan, and I was reminded of, of just the neat thing he's doing this weekend. Uh, Fourteen years ago, Kenan moved to Missouri to be a youth pastor, and he began to disciple about eight guys. Those guys that he began to invest in, a few years down the road, they decided, hey, we want to gather the guys that we've invested in as well and invite you back to lead a retreat. So four years later, Kenan came and led a retreat and was quite shocked just by the number of guys that were there. And these guys aren't just people who are merely professing the name of Christ. These are men who are maturing in their faith, growing in their Christ-likeness, and turning around and helping others do the same. Well, that retreat's been going on for about 10 years, and it continues to be literally the downline of that group that Kenan met with about 14 years ago. And they had their 10th anniversary retreat this year. Kenan hadn't been back in, a, in about four or five years to be with that group, so he wanted to go there and be with them. And it, it's quite remarkable what God does when we invest in somebody to the point that they invest in somebody else. And that keeps on coming. And the, the ripple effect, the implications of that, and the kingdom impact's amazing. So uh, I look forward to hearing from Kenan uh, soon on, on what all God did this weekend. But I did want to pray for him because I know he's there right now and he's going to be sharing with him. So let's pray. God, we do thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is living, who is active. You haven't stopped working. And Lord, I thank you for that, that you have worked through Kenan's life to impact others. Lord, we lift up these men 14 years ago that started meeting in a small group to be discipled. And as a result, Lord, we literally see lives turned upside down by the power of your gospel working in and through broken, fallen people just like us. So, Lord, I pray that you would allow Kenan the great joy of seeing how you moved in his life. And, Lord, we thank you for his obedience. And we thank you that you are moving here at Harvest. God, this church, the story of this church is Jesus Christ. It's the fact that you have moved and you are working so, Lord, as, as we look at things, as we see things happening, I pray that we would turn to no other name but Jesus. And thank you that you have been faithful to move through fallen, broken people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and get into our text for this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and we're investigating Jesus. We are literally investigating his life in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 17 through 32. 17 through 32, so if you would turn there with me. As you're turning there, this, we're going to see two stories this morning. These are pretty common stories that many of us have heard, but what intrigues me about these stories is the way that Jesus interacts with the people in these stories. His interaction, his relationship with them is quite intriguing, so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, and let's read together from the Word of God. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. 
But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And leaving, and he, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclined at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This morning in our text, we see an interesting encounter. And I'm going to go ahead and give you what we're going to see this morning, because I, I find it quite fascinating. There's an uncomfortable truth in this story. An uncomfortable truth is this. That oftentimes, the people who come to Jesus, they are disappointed in him. They're disappointed because their greatest need, what they perceive to be their biggest need in life, is not truly what they need most. What they feel is most urgent, what's on their heart and mind the heaviest, isn't truly what they need most. And I think for many of us, when we're honest with ourselves, we come in here with a lot of things that we're hoping Jesus will change, fix, address. And oftentimes that need that you feel so heavily isn't your deepest need. It's not your primary need. And this morning we're going to see that Jesus addresses what the primary need really is. So let's start looking in verse 17. It says that on those days Jesus was teaching... So here's what's going on. Jesus is teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law, it says they literally come from all over Galilee, from all over Judea, and as far away from Jerusalem. They're showing up from everywhere, but the question is, why do they all of a sudden decide to come? What's going on that would make all the religious leadership show up to watch Jesus? Well, last week, Kenan taught on Jesus healing a man literally full of leprosy. According to Jewish tradition, there was a belief that only Messiah, only Messiah could heal a Jewish man of leprosy. And remember what Jesus said to that Jewish man? He said, go show yourself to the priest. So when this guy shows up before the priest, the priest would have looked at him and said, how did you become healed? And when he said Jesus, they would have said, 
This might be Messiah. We believe only Messiah can heal a Jewish man of leprosy. We've got to send out an investigation team. And that's exactly what they did. The Jews had a, the Jewish leadership. Their supreme court of the day was called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 Jewish leaders. And they would send out a team to investigate any messianic movement. There was actually a lot of messianic movements popping up at this time. So they send them out in a three-step process. First they come and all they do is observe. They don't say a word. They just watch. And then after they've watched, they go back to Jerusalem, go to the Sanhedrin, and they say, here's what we saw in the Sanhedrin. If they determined that what they saw was significant, they would say, go back and ask questions. And they would go back and they would say, who are you? Why are you here? What are you doing? What do you want? They would ask those questions, and based on those answers, they would go back and report to the Sanhedrin a second time. And at that point, they would declare a verdict. And then they would go and give that verdict to the individual. We see John the Baptist go through all three of these. We're going to see Jesus go through all three of these. At this point, they're only coming to observe, but later on, we're going to see that they're going to give Jesus a verdict. We see that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, when people are saying, how is he doing this? Is it by the power of God? And the religious leadership says, no, it's not by the power of God he does this. It's by the power of Beelzebub. This guy is evil. So here, the religious leadership hears there's a significant movement. So they've all shown up. So picture this, the house. Jesus is teaching in a house. It is packed full of people. Both people that have showed up going, we want a miracle. We are here for the show. And there's other people going, man, we, we want to observe this guy. Could he be Messiah? Because they have in their mindset of what Messiah should be. They are looking for Messiah to meet a very specific need that they have. The Roman government is ruling over them. And they want Rome gone. And they want to be able to rule. And they want a king to be set up on the throne. So here when Jesus shows up, they're watching, they're observing. In verse 18, it says, And behold, some men... Now this is where the story gets interesting. Some men were bringing a man who was paralyzed... And they were going to lay him before Jesus. These guys, they come, they approach the house. They can't get anywhere near the house. So they decide, well, we'll just be creative and go up on the roof. And they go up on the roof and they begin to dig a hole in the roof. Now, I know that these roofs are different from ours. They had wood beams going across and they put sticks and mud and thatch and all stuff in between there. And every year you would replace your roof right before rainy season. So they start to dig through this roof. I don't know what the owner of the house was thinking, but they're digging through the roof. Here's Jesus standing there. He's in the middle of a sermon. He is teaching. And just think about this. All of a sudden, you start hearing banging noises and clanging noises and somebody digging through stuff and dust and debris starts to hit people in the head. And at this point, you start to see a little sunlight coming through and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point, Jesus' sermon just ended. I mean, everyone's so distracted, they're not even paying attention to what Jesus is saying, and they're just watching to see what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, you get this bright sunroof in this house. And then a body starts to slowly lower. And this guy lowers right before Jesus. And you know what's obvious? Why this guy's here. There's this paralyzed guy laying right before Jesus, and everybody in that room knows exactly why he's here. He wants to walk. He wants to get up and walk out of that room. Everybody there wants to see a miracle. There's no question what this guy's doing here. And it's at this point that Jesus is going to shine the light in a different direction. 
He's going to show us that what this guy thinks he needs most, what is most urgent to him, what is most pressing to him, is not his deepest need. His deepest need is quite different from that. Look in verse 20. It says, And when he saw their faith, Jesus saw the faith of his friends, and he saw the faith of this man, that he trusted him, that he believed he was Messiah. When Jesus sees that, he says, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now think about this. This guy's laying there. He's wanting to walk, and Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. I can't help but think this guy's disappointed. He's going to go, well, thanks a lot. You know, do, do my friends need to hoist me back up or what, what's going on? This guy's disappointed. And look, everybody else, they're watching. They want to see a miracle. And they're thinking, Jesus, are you clueless? Do you know what this guy's doing here? Everybody's disappointed. And then you've got the religious leaders, and they are there in full force. And they see Jesus, and they are shocked. They're not only disappointed, they are shocked, offended by what Jesus just said. They cannot believe that Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven. Look at what it says in the very next verse, in verse uh, 21. The scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, and now we get from the other Gospels, they're just thinking this. They're not asking the questions out loud. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So all this is running through their minds, and they're thinking, what's going on? And they're thinking, Jesus, don't you know that getting your sins forgiven is complicated? You can't forgive this guy's sins. I mean, we are the religious leadership. We are the ones who usher in the forgiveness of sins. If you want your sins forgiven, here's what you've got to do. You've got to leave Capernaum, and we're way in the north of Israel. You've got to go all the way down to Jerusalem. It would take you a while to get there. You've got to take your family. You've got to take a lamb. And if you're poor or cheap, you take a pigeon or turtle dove. You show up there. You've got to make an appointment with a priest because there's only a few priests who can initiate the forgiveness of sins. And then you've got to get in line. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, you get in line and you set your animal before the priest. The priest looks at your animal and they would often say, this animal is spotless. This animal doesn't cut the mustard. Here's what you got to do. Go out in the courtyard and buy a pre-approved animal. So then they would have to go exchange their Roman money for temple money, go buy a pre-approved animal, then get back in line and wait and wait and wait. And finally they get to the front of the line, they lay their animal before the priest, and the priest slaughters their animal. It's gross, it's nasty, it smells, there's blood everywhere, blood splattered on people's face. It's awful. And then, and only then, are your sins forgiven. But guess what? They're only forgiven for a year. So come back next year and do the exact same thing. Jesus, you cannot forgive sins. It's complicated. It's difficult. Who does he think he is? And they question, who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this guy laying there, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, maybe Jesus... If this guy had done something against you, you could say, hey, I forgive you for what you've done against me, but you cannot blanket forgive sins. No one can blanket forgive sins. Only God can do that. Who does he think he is? And they should make the next logical conclusion. He thinks he's God. He is God. The fair, Jesus knows who's there watching him. He knows the religious leadership. He knows what they want. They're wanting this Messiah to come and conquer Rome, and he's saying, no, 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 no. 
You think Rome is your most urgent problem. You think Rome is your most pressing problem. You think Rome is your real problem. Your real problem is sin. Your real problem is sin. And I'm here to address the number one problem that you have. Everybody in that room, this guy's wanting to be healed, and he thinks his most urgent problem is that he can't walk, that he's paralyzed. But Jesus says, that's not your most urgent problem. You see, for us, we're often like that. We look at our life situations, and man, they'll scream at us, won't they? I mean, we, we all brought some situations into this room that we're going, God, why don't you fix this the way that I want you to fix this? This is urgent. This is pressing. If you would just fix this one thing, then God, we'd be okay. If you'd fix my financial situation, or maybe it's a job situation, or maybe it's a relationship issue, companionship issue, it could be any number of things that we're saying, God, if, if you'll just do this, come on, that's, my, that's what feels urgent. And God says, hey, that's not your most pressing need. You may feel like it is, but your primary need is forgiveness. And he addresses that right here and tells this guy, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows what they're thinking. Look at verse 22. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, you've got to be careful what you think around Jesus. Notice in Scripture, it's, it's almost comical. People will come at him asking a question, and he won't answer their question. He'll answer what they're thinking or what's on their hearts. Here he says, why do you question in your hearts? Listen to that. Jesus addresses where their question is. It's in their heart. Do you know God always looks at your heart? You can come here this morning. You can fool me. You can fool a lot of people about your relationship with God, how you're doing with the Lord. You can say the right things, speak the right things, do the right things, but God sees your heart. He knows if your heart is far from Him or near to Him. Some people can really do the Christian life quite well just by sheer determination. But their heart's far from Jesus. Friend, I tell you, Jesus looks at your heart. He knows if your heart is near Him, if your heart's turned to Him, if your heart's softened by Him, if you love Him. And He looks at these guys' heart, and then He says this, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Well, I'll tell you what's easier to say. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, I could say that right now. I could tell you all, hey, Harvest Church, your sins are forgiven. Now, you might think I'm crazy, but you have no proof of whether that just happened or not. But if there was a paralyzed man lying up here, and I said, rise and walk, and he didn't get up, you'd be like, that didn't go too well. There would be proof, right? So it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. But here's the question. Which is easier to do? You see, to have this paralyzed man walk, Jesus can just say the word and he'll get up and walk, but to forgive sins, boy, that's much more difficult. As the, as the religious leadership was thinking, it's complicated. It's going to require a spotless, sinless life, a sinless person to have a life that we cannot live, to die a death that we deserve, and to literally become sin, to take on the sin of the world upon him, to defeat sin, so that we could be with him. That's what it's going to require. So one is easier to say, but it's not easier to do. In verse 24, it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
This is what everybody's been waiting for. Jesus wasn't as clueless as they thought. He says to this man, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. But look, he says, I want to show you something. He's hoping they make these connections. Why is this man paralyzed? Because of sin, okay? This man is paralyzed. He cannot walk because sin exists in this world. Why do you have relationship problems? Because of sin. Why do you have financial problems? Because of sin. Why do you have disease and sickness problems? Because of sin. Sometimes, they're your pro- Sometimes you brought them on yourself. Sometimes there's somebody else's sin that's come and gotten in your way. Sometimes it's just general sin that exists in this world. But every time we see those issues, we should go, the root of those issues is sin in this world. And guess what? If Jesus has authority over the repercussions of sin, the consequence of sin, why can't this man walk? Because sin exists in the world. And Jesus says, hey, I've got authority over that. Get up and walk. And this guy gets up and walks. Guess what? Jesus has authority over the ultimate consequence of sin, which is eternal separation from God the Father. That's why he's showing this guy this. He's saying, hey, I want you all to see. He's sending a clear message. He knows the religious leadership there is watching. I want to send you a clear message that I have authority over sin. I've come for a different reason. And these guys are shocked. They're disappointed. They wanted something else. Everybody had come there hoping Jesus would do something different. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we hope that God will do something different with us. That he'll fix some situation as if that'll make it all better. Because all we can see is with these earthly eyes. We forget to look with spiritual eyes at how this world operates. You know what, you know what happened to that guy that Jesus told to get up and walk? He got up and walked. He left. And maybe 10 Maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 40 years later, he died. He died, okay? He didn't stay healed. He got worse. His body fell apart and he died. That was a temporary thing. He's not still walking around here today going, Hey, Jesus healed me 2,000 years and I just can't die. He's not here. He died. But Jesus solved his biggest problem. He saw his faith and he said, Your sins are forgiven. And that guy's in eternity with God our Father. He's in the very presence of Jesus Christ right now, but he's not walking around on the face of this earth because our biggest issues aren't these temporal issues that we get so focused on. Here, it says, And immediately, verse 25, Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Notice the immediate healing of this man. This man's muscles would have been atrophied. He wouldn't have been able to walk. And all of a sudden, Jesus doesn't just heal him. He completely restores him. And he leaves walking. And he praises God. And look at this, verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus here. They go in awe at this miracle. I think Jesus was a little disappointed. He says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, come on, Jesus, get a clue. And then Jesus heals this guy and everybody's like, wow, it's amazing. They get excited about the wrong thing here. They're excited about the temporary instead of the eternal. And I think Jesus is thinking, why didn't y'all catch it? Why didn't y'all catch this? And notice that the crowd is filled with awe. That word always strikes me when I see it. 
You know why? One of my greatest fears in life, and one of the, one of the times that, uh, that, that I always lament, are the times that I lose all of God. You know, here, here at Harvest Church, we're going to be a bit of a broken record at times. And by that I mean, you're going to, we're going to weekly come here and we're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel. And the gospel has transformed our lives. We are new creations. He set us free and that wrecks havoc on our lives and we go live in light of that. We're going to say that week after week after week. I pray that you never grow tired of that. I pray that you never lose the awe of what Jesus has done for us. Because so often people lose all of that for a few reasons. We become so familiar with the story. We've heard that Jesus died for us. We've heard that he rose again. We've heard that he's forgiven sins, that we forget what an amazing truth that is. And we don't live in light of that. And some people feel like they've arrived. I've been at this Christian thing 20, 30, 40 years, and I know all this stuff. And after a while, we just get hardened to the basic truth, the amazing truth that Jesus died for us and set us free from the bondage of sin, the slavery of sin, that sin should not dominate our lives anymore, that we can repent and turn and run from it. Jesus has just forgiven this guy's sin and no one seems to really be that excited about it. They're all a little disappointed. I pray that we don't lose our all. We don't lose our all of God. I confess to you, Sometimes I feel like I forget that way too much. Scripture says that we're to give thanks in all circumstances, that we're to be thankful people. Why? We're to be thankful because no matter what I face circumstantially, guess who's with me? Jesus. Guess where my security is? It's not in this earth. We're not here long. My security is in Jesus. My home is heaven. I'm not here long. These problems of this world, though they may be real, Though they hurt, though they are difficult, and though I wish God would often fix them the way I want Him to, they are temporary. He solved the greatest issue I have. Now, Jesus has just told this guy his sins forgiven, but what about, what about the most detestable person you can think about? How far does this forgiveness of sin extend? Can, I mean, can, is He going to be able to forgive anybody? Think about the person that everyone says they are incapable of ever turning to God. They've gone too far. What they've done is too heinous. They are the worst of the worst. You know in Israel who that was? A tax collector. You see, Rome, they hated Rome. Rome ruled over Israel. And you paid your taxes to Rome. And what Herod would do, Herod would auction off a region to the highest bidder. And that guy would become the big tax collector. He was called the Big Moak. And then he would hire out literally little teenage thugs to go and work tax collector booths. They were the heavy. They were the muscle. And they would set up these, they were called little moaks. They would set a tax collector booth, and if you didn't pay your taxes, they would beat you down. That was their job. You hated these guys. They had turned on the nation. They had betrayed the nation. Their testimony was not valid in court. They could not go in the synagogue. And they believed that they were incapable, incapable of repentance. God's grace could not cover them is what they believed. One well, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. I think it's interesting that he uses his family name. 
You know what Levi's other name is? It's Matthew. But here, they use this family name, Levi. Do you know what someone with the family name Levi should be doing? They should be a priest. This guy should be a priest, but instead he has turned his back on the nation. And what's he doing? He's sitting at a tax collector's booth, betraying his nation. This guy is the most hated man in the city of Capernaum. And Levi's hit the jackpot too. He's making tons of money. Nobody knew exactly how much taxes you were to collect, but a tax collector could collect above and beyond and keep it. So Levi is in a major city. Capernaum was the largest city on the Sea of Galilee. It's along the Via Maris on a major highway. He is collecting tons of money. And Jesus comes to him halfway through verse 27. And it says, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Immediately, this guy Levi, his, Jesus saw his misery. He saw that, that he was not satisfied in this life. This guy had the good life, so to speak. He was hated, but he had all the material blessings this world could offer. He was doing quite well, yet he was miserable. He was hated. And Jesus comes and says, follow me. And look, leaving everything. Now listen to this. No disciple leaves more than Levi. The fishermen, guess what they can do? They can leave fishing, but they can go back and fish again. In fact, they do. Levi, once he leaves that tax collector's booth, he's never going back. He can't go back because as soon as he leaves, they're putting another tax collector right in his spot. So Jesus calls him and immediately follows. To me, this is one of the most powerful pictures of repentance in the totality of Scripture. Here's what he does. He's sitting in sin. He's in a sinful lifestyle. And Jesus says, follow me. And he abandons his sinful lifestyle, doesn't worry about the consequences, and follows Jesus. I tell you, there's people here today who we, we know we're caught up in a sinful lifestyle. But we are afraid to abandon that sin. We're afraid because it's going to cost. I'm not going to pretend like it's not going to have a cost, but I'll tell you this, Jesus is far greater than what you've paid, than what you've lost. So this guy is leaving everything, yet he's gaining everything. He's leaving everything this world says you should desire, and he's gaining everything that God says will make you full and complete, and that's Jesus Christ. In verse 29, it says, Levi made a great feast for him. In his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Levi instantly becomes an evangelist. I, lo I love this about Levi. Instantly, he goes and he throws a party. He's going to lose his house. He's going to lose his influence in that city. All of it's gone. And obviously, he had a lot of money. He has a house. He has a great feast. And he invites all his buddies over and says, Hey, I want you to come hear this guy, Jesus. And notice it says they're reclining at the table. It's not like Jesus just walked in there and waved and said, hey guys, let me tell you something. Come believe in me and I'm out of here. He sits down and dwells with the sinner and rests with them and spends time with them. That's what Jesus does. This is shocking. In, in ancient Israel, you would never sit and recline at the table of some sinful person. And Jesus comes to the greatest sinners in the city, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the ones that they said could not go to synagogue, and Jesus comes and hangs out with them. There's a stat that says the majority of Christians share their faith 
more in the first two years of coming to Christ than the rest of their life. In the first two years of coming to Christian, a person will share their faith more than the rest of their life. You know why? Because I think during that first two years, we're still in awe of Jesus Christ. We're still amazed that He accepted me, a sinful, broken person, and He welcomed me home. But as we lose that awe and that wonder, and we stop losing amazement at the gospel, we stop sharing the story, and we stop telling others. You see, sharing the gospel should be a natural overflow of our love for Jesus and what He's done in our lives. I pray that we never stop being amazed that we've been welcomed into the family of God, that Jesus has forgiven us. And here he's reclining. And look in verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples. They don't ask Jesus, they ask his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus doesn't give his disciples a a chance to answer because they're there offended. Do you know who Jesus' disciples were at this point? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. What was their occupation? Fishermen. Do you know when you got off the boat, guess whose tax booth was sitting right there on the edge of the shore at the edge of the city? Levi. And Levi was saying to Peter, Hey, Peter. Yep, come pay up, Peter. Come pay your taxes. How do you think Peter felt about Levi? I think he hated him. I think he was like, Jesus you can't bring Levi. You can't have Levi follow you. Everybody hates this guy. He's the worst of the worst. There's no way you can welcome him in. So before the disciples can give an answer, because they are disappointed, they're shocked. They're thinking, hey, we've just hit the jackpot. We get to follow Jesus. But this guy, Levi? And some people, some of us here, we look at our lives and we go, man, if people knew my story... They wouldn't let me in the doors. They would clear the aisle. But Jesus says, no matter how awful you may seem, you may have been, my forgiveness covers the worst of the worst of the worst. Whatever we consider that to be, his forgiveness reaches. His forgiveness reaches that far. And look, here's what he says. And this is his, he's going to give his mission right here. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know what I think the religious leadership was doing at this point? They're thinking, good answer, Jesus. We like that answer. We're righteous. We do what we're supposed to do. We obey the laws. We keep the commands, Jesus. Good answer. You stay down there with those dirty, filthy sinners. We don't need you. Do you know what they should have done? They should have fallen on their face, fallen on their knees before Jesus and said, man, we are sinful people. We are so broken. We need you. Forgive us. Forgive our sins. See, here in this room, there's those of us that we struggle with righteousness. We think God is just so glad that we're helping him out. Man, God really needs me. He should be thankful that I'm here. I do, I, I do all the right Christian stuff. I say the right things. I go to the right places. And ain't God glad I'm here? Man, we need Jesus. It's only by God's grace that any of us can be here. These guys are too righteous to repent. They're too righteous. Self-righteousness. Jesus came to call sinners. That's everybody. Everybody's a sinner. But here's the thing. You cannot come to Christ 
if you don't recognize your sin. It starts there. I'm a sinful person. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. I'm sinful. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. And until we do that, we can't fall upon our face before Jesus. I love that Levi instantly becomes an evangelist. He begins to share his faith. My prayer is that we'll be people within our spheres of influence, within our places of work, that we would be light there, that we, we would share the gospel, that we would live it out in such a way that people see something different and that God will give us opportunities to speak that gospel truth. I'll tell you, we're not going to over-program you here at Harvest Church. We're not going to have a million programs where you come and do everything at the church. We want you out in your communities, in your places of work, in your spheres of influence, living out the gospel. And in order to do that, you've got to have some space. You've got to have some place to do that. See, Levi takes all he has and gives it to Jesus. That's repentance. Today, there's some here who, you need to repent. Sure, you, you may be a follower of Christ. And let me tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you're completely forgiven. You're forgiven in every sin you've ever done and that you ever will do. That's how vast His mercy and His grace covers. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ and you're living in sin that you don't repent of, you'll never experience the full grace of God. You'll never experience the fullness that He has here for you on earth because you're holding on to the things of this world and you've got to be like Levi. Turn and abandon. That's what repentance is. Many times we don't understand repentance. It's, I'm headed towards sin. I'm going the wrong direction. Jesus turns us around, and we follow him. Let me ask you, who are you following? Are you following Jesus? Are you following him, or are you following something else? The ideas of the world, your own plans, your own schemes, your own thoughts. Some of us need to come confess and say, God, I lay my life before you. We're, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as we're about to enter that, I'm going to go ahead and ask our elders to uh, find a, a table. Because um, I know some of you have asked, you said, hey, we, wanna, we don't always get to see who the elders are. Well, they're going to be stationed around here. And if you need to talk to somebody, we, we encourage you to grab a hold of one of them. So um, our elders, you can go ahead and start moving out and walking up and finding a spot. As we enter into a time of communion, Communion is relationship. It's, it's fellowship with God. And Scripture tells us to examine our hearts before we take communion. Let me ask you are, you, are you living in full light of the forgiveness you've received? Is that something that, that are you living in awe and amazement that Jesus has forgiven me? Do you continually come back every day and say, Jesus, I need you today. I trust in you. The tables are open. I tell you to take time. Examine your heart. God looks at the heart. I tell you, you can, you can fool all the elders here. You can make us think one thing. But Jesus sees your heart. I encourage you, lay your heart before Christ. Allow him to examine. We may, you may need to repent. You may need to turn. You may trust Jesus for the first time. Let's pray. God, I do thank you. Thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins, of our transgressions. God, we seems like we run from one area to another. We run from open rebellious sin to self-righteousness. 
instead of realizing we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And God, I thank you for all of us who have trusted you. We are secure in the cross. We are secure in Jesus Christ. We don't need to ask for forgiveness, for forgiveness of sins, because we've been forgiven. But we ask for forgiveness, God, so that that relationship, that sweet, beautiful relationship of following you is restored and is all that it should be. God, I thank you for grace. Don't ever ever let us lose sight of the fact that we don't deserve anything that you've given us. We deserve separation from you, yet you've allowed us to come near to you through your son Jesus. Don't let us be like the people we see in the story that are bringing all these needs, yet we forget you've met our most urgent need. God, I pray that we will bring those needs before you, but that we won't so focus on them that we lose sight that you've already met the greatest need through your son, Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Tables are open.